Uh, Let's come to God's word this morning. I'd like to have you open to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. As it says on the screen, we're continuing a sermon series that we started last week on the topic of faith and politics. If you weren't here last week, Uh, and you've got a bunch of questions for why we're doing this, I just encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message because I tried to answer a number of those questions preemptively last week, and I don't plan to rehash all of that again uh, each week that we're doing this. Uh, So we're going to turn to a text that I think if you preach on faith and politics, you have to deal with at some point or another. This is the famous render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's passage. So let's take a look at Mark's version of that here in chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And this is what it says. Later, they, uh, that is uh, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and some of the elders of uh, the people, the Jewish people, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to try and catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You do not listen to others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked them. Bring me a denarius, a Roman coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, I will never forget the unity that our country experienced in the hours, days, weeks, and even months after September 11, 2001. As a nation, we shared our confusion, our pain, our fear, and our anger over what had happened to us. More than anything, though, uh, what I remember most clearly is our resolve. We shared a, a deep desire to see justice done. We stood as one, and we were determined to find the people responsible for those horrific attacks and hold them accountable. I remember feeling that same passion myself, even though I was only in middle school at the time. uh, I remember deciding that I wanted to join the military after high school. I wanted to take down the Taliban and make them pay for harboring the people who had attacked us. I wanted to find Osama bin Laden and his followers and bring them to justice. And I wanted to send a message to the rest of the world that no one, no one messed with my country. I wanted to do all of that, and I was willing to die even to do all of that. But if you had asked me back then if I also would have been willing to die for my faith as a Christian, to die not just for the United States of America, but for the kingdom of God, to give my life away not just for what I believed about my country, but for what I believed about Jesus Christ, I don't think that I could have honestly answered yes. You see, while I was certainly an American patriot at the time, I don't think that you could have called me a patriot of the kingdom of God. And I've come to see that there's a problem with that. 
There's a problem with being a patriot of our earthly countries, but not our heavenly one. There's a problem with being loyal, at least more loyal, to the earthly nations that we're a part of than we are to Christ and his kingdom. And there's a problem with being willing to sacrifice and die for those earthly nations if we're not also willing to do the same for our faith. There's a problem with all of that because whether consciously or subconsciously, it indicates that we've mixed up our allegiances. You see, as Christians, and we said this last week, right, we're not citizens just of our earthly kingdoms and nations. Instead, we are actually dual citizens. We're citizens of our earthly countries and nations, yes, but we are also citizens of another country, a heavenly nation, the kingdom of God. And that's the citizenship, allegiance, and loyalty we're called to prioritize, even over those that we hold to our earthly countries, which is something that Jesus himself makes clear in our text for this morning. Now, truth be told, I've heard just about every interpretation imaginable for this text that we're looking at this morning. Uh, For instance, some people take a borderline anarchist approach to this text and argue Jesus' words here mean that Christians shouldn't accept, support, or participate in earthly governments at all. Uh, Put simply, those who take this perspective argue that Christians shouldn't pay taxes, hold public office, serve in the military, abide by laws, at least not those that they feel are not explicitly biblical, or vote. And I'm kind of painting in broad strokes here, but this approach generally advocates for the disassembling of earthly governments and the idea that people should be free to live however they want, governed only by God himself alone. Others, arguing the other direction, say that Jesus is teaching a complete or total sphere sovereignty in this text. What they mean by that is that our faith as Christians has nothing to do with politics. Absolutely nothing, they say. Instead, those two things are like parallel lines. They're like streams that never cross or interact with each other. They are two totally distinct, separate parts of our lives that have no effect or bearing on each other. And so as a result, people who take that view argue that Christians can be as involved or as uninvolved in government as they like. Because our faith and politics are two totally distinct, separate spheres of our lives that never interact or impact each other, Christians are free to engage in politics and government however, whenever, and to whatever extent they want without really thinking about the consequences. Now I'll just say that I think both of those interpretations as well as a number of others I've seen miss the mark. They miss the mark because they approach Jesus' words here the wrong way. You see, those interpretations as well as a number of others that I've seen try to turn this passage and others too into a how-to guide for Christian political engagement. The only problem with that is that Scripture isn't meant to be read that way. Scripture isn't reducible to a how-to guide on Christian political engagement. It's not reducible to a how-to guide on any topic, actually. And that's because the Bible isn't really interested in answering our modern-day curiosities and questions that we try to bring to the text. Instead, and this is important, this is key for understanding Scripture as a whole, the Bible is much, 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 much more interested in getting us to consider the questions that it wants to ask rather than the ones that we want to ask. You see, often when we read the Bible these days, we bring a whole host of modern ideas, assumptions, and considerations to the text. We try to read scripture on our terms, through our lens, so that it addresses and answers the questions that we want it to answer. 
But the reality is that as the living, breathing word of God, it's not interested in doing what we want. Instead, the Bible is interested in doing what God wants. It's interested in achieving his purposes. And in light of that, it's interested in forming and shaping us in light of those purposes. So what happens when we read this text this way? What happens when we let this text work on us the way that it wants to? What happens when we let it form and shape us? What happens when we bring to this text not questions of politics and government and how they should function in the modern age, but rather a humble and submissive openness to the will of God and the work that he wants to do on us as his people? Well, I think instead of a how-to guide for Christian political engagement, we instead find something else. It's because Jesus isn't trying to give us simple answers for how to be both Christian and American. How could he? This interaction happened 1,700 years before our nation even came into existence. Instead, in this passage, as well as the rest of Scripture, Jesus is trying to pose a different question, a deeper question, a more important question. And that question is this. Who or what claims your ultimate allegiance? Who or what claims your ultimate allegiance? Where does your loyalty ultimately lie? What's your highest priority in your life? What is most important to you? Is it God or something else? Is it God or someone else? Who or what claims your ultimate allegiance? That's the question that Jesus is getting at here in this text, and that's the question we're going to unpack together today too. Now first, uh, we need to understand a bit of context to this passage, and the first bit of context that we need to understand is this. There was no such thing as separation of church and state back in Jesus' day. Okay, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. While we might be pretty comfortable with that idea these days, separating our faith and politics and then keeping them separate, or at least trying to keep them separate, that's not how life worked back in Jesus' day. Instead, in the ancient world, everything in your life was interconnected. It was all bound together. It all interacted and dealt with each other, right? Your religion affected your family, which affected your home life, which affected your job. Your job affected your hobbies, which affected who you spent time with, which affected uh, what you believed. What you believed affected your politics, which affected your religion, which affected your family, which affected your home life, which if you're keeping track is the start of the cycle all, all over again. Everything was bound up together and interacted with each other. People back then didn't have the luxury of sort of separating or parceling out the different areas of their lives and treating them separately. Instead, each part of their lives were connected to the others. And so what you believed in one area of your life had a direct impact on what you believed in other areas of your life or how you lived. And while that was true for everyone back then, it was especially true for the Jewish people. You see, ever since God made his covenant with Abram and Sarai back in Genesis 12, and we talked about this a bit last week, right? The Jewish people had seen themselves as a special nation. They saw themselves as a special nation because of, out of all the nations on the face of the earth, they were the ones that God had chosen to deal with and rule directly. Sure, they had prophets and judges, kings and rulers and various other human authorities over the years, but at a basic level, no matter who their earthly rulers were, the Jewish people saw God himself as their ultimate Lord, their true king, the real power behind the throne. As a result, and we've talked about this before, the Jews hated being under foreign rule. They hated being under foreign rule because it called that belief 
that God was their true Lord into question. You see, if you have to call someone else, some other ruler, Lord, and at the time of Jesus, the Jews had to call the Roman emperor Lord, then what does that say about God's authority? Is he still in control? Is he still your ruler? Is he still your true Lord or not? That's something that the Jewish people really struggled with. And so you can see how for them, faith and politics weren't really able to be separated out. They had a direct impact on the other. The fact, by the way, that the Roman Caesars, the Roman emperors, thought of themselves as divine didn't help matters. Uh, You see, one of the titles that the Roman emperors used at the time for themselves was Divi Filius, which is Latin for son of God. In fact, they would put that as an inscription on their coins, which is something Jesus references in this passage. In verse 15, Jesus asked for a denarius, which was a Roman coin. And then in verse 16, he asks, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, his opponents replied. And what did that inscription say? Tiberius Caesar Augustus, Divi Filius Augustus. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In short, it said Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God. Just for kicks and giggles and because I'm a giant nerd, you know what the inscription on the other side of the coin would have said? Pontifex Maximus, highest priest. That's what the Roman emperors claimed about themselves. They claimed to be the son of God and they claimed to be the highest priest, the highest religious authority in the world at the time. As N.T. Wright says in his commentary on this passage, if the Romans had gone out of their way to be offensive to the Jews, they could hardly have done it better. I mean, these, these are... Uh, things that the Jewish people would have seen as blasphemy. These are people of the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. That's what the Jewish people believed, and they believed it exclusively. No matter the claims or contentions of any other authority, whether earthly or otherwise, they believed God alone was the divine and that he did not share his divinity. So the Jews lived in a constant state of tension. Their religious and political beliefs were at odds with each other. On the one hand, they had Caesar ruling over them, claiming to be Lord and God and demanding their ultimate allegiance. And then on the other hand, they had God, their true Lord, the one they knew to be God, who rightfully deserved their ultimate allegiance. Again, so much for separation of church and state, right? That's the first thing we need to understand here. The Jews lived in a constant state of religious political tension. The second thing we need to understand is that there were a lot of political groups, political parties, if you will, back in Jesus' day. We tend to think of these as mainly religious groups when we read about them in scripture, but again, because separation of church and state didn't really exist, there were political overtones to all of the various groups that existed at the time. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, even the pseudo-apocalyptic Essenes, they all would have carried certain political overtones to them. And that says nothing, by the way, of overtly political groups like the Herodians and Zealots, both of whom were much more specifically focused just on politics. And two of those groups show up in our passage for this morning. Sent by the chief priests, teachers of the law, and some of the Jewish elders, a mixed group of Pharisees and Herodians show up and try to trap Jesus in his words. Now that's actually pretty surprising. It's surprising because the Pharisees and Herodians don't really get along. They don't like each other. They're like Democrats and Republicans, okay? 
Um, that was a joke. That didn't work. It's strange that they're working together here. These are not bipartisan groups, okay? They don't like each other. It's strange because they were on different sides of the political aisle. We've talked about this before, but the Pharisees were a group of lay religious leaders, uh, mostly made up of middle-class businessmen. These were people who studied the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, on the side, in addition to their day jobs. They would work all day and they would study all night. They were a renewal movement in Jewish society. They advocated for a return to the kind of purity that they believed Jewish society had achieved back in the Old Testament. In other words, they were looking for revival in Jewish culture. And they were a group, the Pharisees were a group who saw the future of God's people mainly in religious terms. If we can just get back to the old time religion like like the way we used to practice it, then we'll finally be the kind of people we're supposed to be again. The way forward for the Jewish people, the Pharisees believed, was by looking back in their history and recommitting to the way that they used to be. If they could do that, if they could get back to the kind of faithfulness, the kind of righteousness, the kind of obedience to God that they used to live according to, then maybe, just maybe, God would bless them and reestablish them as his people again. Part of that blessing and reestablishment, though, would have included liberation from the Romans. But simply, the Pharisees believed that as long as the Jewish people were ruled by foreign powers, including the Romans, it was a sign that they had not yet been faithful enough. And so the Pharisees, while not as overtly subversive as kind of more radical groups like the Zealots, were still a decidedly anti-Rome party. The Herodians, on the other hand, though, were a pro-Rome party. They were a decidedly pro-Rome party. In fact, they were probably the most pro-Rome party at the time. That's because the Herodians were the political backers, and this is where they get their name, of King Herod, who was the puppet king that Rome had appointed over Palestine at the time. In other words, while the Pharisees saw the future of the Jewish people mainly through a religious lens, the Herodians saw the future through a political one. They were more than happy to kind of kiss up to Rome if it meant that they could share in a bit of Rome's power. Sure, they'd still have to pay allegiance to Caesar, but if they did it well enough, if they played ball, if they played by Caesar's rules, then maybe he would cut them a little bit of slack and give them at least enough freedom so that they could pretend they were their own nation again. And so the Pharisees and Herodians are on different sides of the political spectrum. They disagreed with each other. They didn't like each other. There wouldn't have been much that they would have seen eye to eye on. Except... Jesus. Because as much as the Herodians and Pharisees disagreed with and disliked each other, they disliked Jesus even more. That's because Jesus said publicly and repeatedly in his teaching that they were both wrong. He was critical of the Pharisees' overemphasis on religious rules and a return to the past, but he was also disparaging of the Herodians' power plays and their willingness to compromise with Rome. And so Jesus called them both out. Neither, he said, were focused on God. Neither were leading the people to follow him. Instead, both were trying to build God's kingdom their own way, how they thought it should look rather than God's way. And so Jesus criticized them for it. And so despite their differences and disagreements, the Pharisees and Herodians team up against Jesus here. While they might have had different ways of going about things, at the very least, they could agree on one thing. Jesus had to go. And so that's what's going on in our text for this morning. Working together, the Pharisees and Herodians come up with a way to trap Jesus and get him in trouble. They come to Jesus here and they say, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're sort of buttering Jesus up here a little bit. And then all of a sudden, just like that, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, truth be told, this is the perfect trap for Jesus. It's the perfect trap because it's a, it's a no-win situation for him. Whatever Jesus says here, he's going to find himself in hot water. Because if Jesus answers affirmatively, if he says, yes, you should pay the tax, then the anti-Roman Pharisees are going to label him a collaborator with Rome, and he'll lose support of the people who have been following him, many of whom would have resented the rule of Rome. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then the pro-Roman Herodians are right there and they're gonna go report him to the authorities and Jesus is gonna end up on trial for treason. So whichever way Jesus answers here, he's in trouble. One way or another, the Pharisees and Herodians get to discredit him, they get to dispose of him, they get to get him out of the way. It's the perfect trap. The only problem is that Jesus doesn't answer the question the way he's supposed to, okay? He doesn't give an either or answer, the kind that the Herodians and Pharisees are looking for. Instead, he gives a both and answer that gets at something deeper. It gets at that question we asked earlier, to whom or what is your ultimate allegiance? Because ultimately for Jesus, the issue at stake here isn't about taxes and governments and our loyalty to them. Instead, it's about our loyalty, our fidelity, our allegiance to God. In verse 15, he tells the Pharisees and Herodians, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Both And yes and no, that's Jesus' answer here. You see, in the first half of this answer, what Jesus more or less says is yes, pay the tax. The coin was made in Caesar's image. It bears his inscription, so give it back to him. It it belongs to him. But then comes the second part of Jesus' answer. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Again, the coin belonged to Caesar. It bore his inscription. It was made in his image Let me ask you, what's made in God's image? We are. That's Jesus' point. What Jesus is saying here is that there are certain things we owe to our earthly governments. We'll get at this more later in this series when we talk about texts like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and 1 Timothy 2. But our earthly governments are due a certain degree of our loyalty. Our earthly leaders do deserve a certain amount of our respect and support As Christians, there are certain things that we owe to those in authority over us. It's just that we don't owe everything to them. We might owe some coins to Caesar because they're made in his image, but we owe all the rest of ourselves to God because we are made in his image. As his image bearers, his people, those loyal first and foremost to him, every part of us, our whole selves, our very lives belong to him. Yes, give Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus says, but give the rest to God. That's Jesus' both and answer. That's his yes and no here. Caesar can reasonably expect to receive the things he's due, and our earthly governments today can as well, but they can't expect everything. Caesar may think he's God, but he's not. 
And so he only gets to receive what he actually deserves. All the rest, God deserves. We need to remember that still today. We need to remember that our ultimate allegiance, instead of to a party, platform, candidate, or even a country, is ultimately to God. And I'll admit, that can be a tricky balance sometimes. It can be hard to know where our earthly allegiances end and our heavenly ones pick up. One rule of thumb that I like to use in my own life is this. When our earthly allegiances and our heavenly one to God conflict with each other, when our preferred position, platform, party, or candidate rubs up against scripture and what we believe as Christians, which one wins? Are we willing to sacrifice what we want, what we desire, what would be most convenient or easiest to us out of loyalty to God? Because while we may indeed have allegiances here on earth as human beings, as Christians, our allegiance to God is far and away the most important. After all, while Caesar may be able to produce a few coins in his image, God made all the rest. Not only did he make it, he's also remaking it. We call that the gospel. It's the story of scripture. It's the mission of God. He made a good world in the beginning, but we mixed up our allegiances and as a result, we messed up that good world. And yet God has been working on a project of redemption ever since, renewing this world and reclaiming us as his people. The way he did that was through his son, Jesus Christ. And though Caesar may claim to be the son of God and highest priest, we know that Christ is our true high priest. He's the real king of kings. He's the actual son of lords. He's the true son of God who came down here to establish his father's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is the one to whom every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, and all allegiance is ultimately due. And we are his citizens, his subjects, his servants. And the beautiful part of the gospel is that we have a part to play in that story. We can only play that part, though, if we live as subjects of our king. Let's remember that. That in every area of our lives, every inch of this creation, everything we think, say, and do, our ultimate allegiance is always to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have created us. You are the whole reason we exist in the first place. You gave us the very breath of life. And so, Lord, we are made in your image. Help us to live as people of your image. Help us to hold our allegiances on this earth loosely enough that we can hold tighter to our allegiance to you. We thank you for our earthly nations, our rulers. Help us to give them the respect and support and loyalty that they deserve. But help us always to reserve our ultimate loyalty for you. Lead us as our God and King. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.